0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails, The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. To say that our guest today's story is amazing is mostly just a serious understatement. This year, Mike McKnight won for the second time the triple crown of 200s, And this year, that meant that he won the Bigfoot 200 in August, then he won the Tahoe 200 in September, and then for good measure, he just wrapped up the Triple Crown by winning the Moab 240. And you heard us talking about the Moab 240 in last week's episode of Off the Couch, where we conducted a number of interviews from Mile 201 at the Geyser Pass aid station of the Moab 240. Now, not only did Mike win all three of these Triple Crown events, but in covering those 640 miles of combined racing, he smashed his own cumulative time record for the three races by 43 hours. Now, if that all sounds superhuman and impossible to you, well, join the club. But Mike's accomplishments become even more improbable when you learn that he was a chubby kid who grew up on a dairy farm and didn't participate in sports till he tried one season of high school football. And then the whole story gets even more improbable still when you factor in that Mike broke his back in a ski accident eight years ago and had two rods and nine screws placed in his spine along with part of his hip bone. And so, in this conversation, we talk to Mike about all of these improbable things, including how much total sleep he got over the course of racing 640 miles and more. And so, here it is, my conversation with Mike McKnight. Well, Mike, how are you today, and where are you today? (sighs)
1: um, I'm I'm fairly good today. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Uh, I'd say I'm not as, as good as I could be because I'm kind of going for like a – I'm doing like a little multi-day fast right now, so I'm kind of tired right now.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. I, but, like, um, I like that that's the reason you're tired.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's been a week post-MOAB, so I've had some time to sleep and eat a ton of food, so – you know, from a recovery aspect, I feel pretty good, but I'm just tired because I have no calories in me. <laughs> oh
0: man. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the diet thing. I think a bit later, uh, but um, cool. but for now, um, do you remember when exactly you crossed the finish line of the Moab 240?
1: Uh, it was just before 7 p.m. on Sunday night. Uh, I don't remember the date though. It but was it, a couple Sundays ago.
0: Was it a couple Sundays ago already? yeah
1: yeah it's been um this uh, this upcoming Sunday will be oh no, so two weeks this upcoming Sunday will be two weeks okay so week and a half the thirteenth
0: the thirteenth okay yeah so this was the thirteenth and um so let's start there. so it has been I mean yeah, about a week and a half, I guess and so how how has this recovery time been and and I guess I'll ask too, how has this recovery been as opposed to some of your other you know, big two hundred mileer efforts.
1: You know, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. I've found that between Bigfoot and between Bigfoot and Tahoe, and between Tahoe and Moab, um, I was definitely tired, but mechanically, and um, I, I felt fine. Um, I didn't have anything that worried me that it would flare up or cause issues at any of those races. Uh, Now that Moab's over though, it feels like my body knows that I'm done and it's kind of letting loose on everything that's been agitated over the past few months. (laughs) So like top of my foot hurts, my hip hurts a little bit, my quads hurt, like things that if this this popped up before Tahoe or before Moab, I would be a little bit worried. But
0: Hmm.
1: now that it's over, my body's just kind of letting loose. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Isn't that a funny thing? Like sometimes the body's ability to just like, uh, you know, I guess it's a mind body thing where we can just kind of maybe will ourselves to like, all right, we're going to keep it together here. But then once it's over, that's when we get to fall apart.
1: Yeah. And your body's like, you're the one that put us through this. So... <laughs> <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> you, have to, you have to deal with this now.
0: <laughs> Talk to me about how you were feeling. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it to the Moab 240 for now. Um, how were you feeling through the through the two hundred and forty through this race,
1: so I noticed well, as each of the races went on, so at Tahoe and Moab, I noticed that I was progressively more tired um, a lot quicker than mm. I was say at Bigfoot. Uh-huh. So just from the get go at Moab, and um, I had a bunch of fr- so the first aid station at Moab was roughly eight miles in, and it was right there in the city. And so I saw a couple of my friends there who were volunteering at the aid station and there's a bunch of us that came in together at the same aid station. One of them, his name's Rob. Um, he lives here in Denver and we're pretty good friends. But everybody told me when they saw me at that aid station that they were worried about me just because of how fatigued I looked. Hmm. And I was also worried about myself because I, I was very, very tired from the get-go. Um, so I was feeling kind of worried. But as soon as I got to roughly mile... Oof, it was about mile 60. Um, <laughs> you know, at that point it was me, me and David Hoggins. He, yeah. he was running the race as well. And from about mile 30 to mile 60, he and I were within a mile of each other. We would pass each other. We'd run with each other. We'd talk. And that was a pretty fun experience. But he and I were in second and third place. And then <clears throat> around mile 60, the guy that was in first place went out way too hard and, hmm. and kind of blew up. So, I passed him at that point and, you know, I was in first place at mile 60 when I was feeling super tired. So that kind of gave me a little bit of a mental boost. Hmm. Um, So from mile 60 onward, I I had a little bit of fatigue, but nothing like the start of it. And I was just kind of able to put my head down and and grind it out to the finish.
0: (laughs) When do you typically like to get into first place in one of these really long races? Like, do you like to get there as quickly as possible or... What's your, do you, or do you care? Um,
1: so my coach, my running coach is Jeff Browning mm-hmm. and <clears throat> anybody in the ultra world that follows him knows that his style is very much chill out a little bit and then hunt later. And so he kind of passed that on to me. Um, and I did that at Bigfoot and Tahoe where, you know, at Bigfoot, I was in fifth place for a lot of the race and then I didn't catch first place till roughly 150 miles and same thing for tahoe i was in second place for the majority of it till roughly 150 miles as well and that's where i passed first so getting into first place at about 60 miles at moab kind of i was worried that i was going to turn into the guy that blows up at 150 miles Hmm. and i was running a little bit more scared than i would where i i definitely prefer to be the guy that comes into an aid station there's two people in front of me and And I asked my crew, okay, how many miles are they ahead of me and kind of hunt. Hmm. So I I, I prefer that strategy a lot more. So I was definitely a little worried at that point when I got into first, but I tried to ride that as long as I could. And fortunately, um, nothing bad happened and I was able to maintain the pace.
0: Talk to me a little bit about, you You mentioned you were kind of running a bit with and trading, you know, places with David Goggins. Had you met him before?
1: no. The the most I heard of, so it was probably a year ago, I had a buddy who knows that I ultra run. He messaged me, and he was just like, dude, have you heard of David Goggins? And I, I told him no, and he told me a little bit about him. After that, like I would say once a month, I would have a friend who would message me and say, basically, they would ask me if I've ever done bad water. <laughs> Uh And I would tell them, no, I've never done bad water. And then I would ask them, have you by chance been reading David Goggin's book? Uh Uh
0: (laughs) And they'd say, yeah. So
1: (laughs) I just learned about him from all my friends who, who read his book.
0: (laughs) That's great.
1: But no, i never met him before.
0: Okay. Well, important question. Have you now read his book?
1: I, I like to read, but it's only been a week, man.
0: <laughs> what are you doing? Uh... I mean, you got time here. You, uh, you know, you're not doing any long runs just yet, at least I hope not. That I made an assumption that's... No. Ma- <laughs> you got some reading time.
1: No, I know. It's, it's on my list, but I <laughs> okay. haven't read it yet.
0: So how were those interactions? Was there anything interesting to report or pretty just kind of matter of fact?
1: No, yeah. He's He's a... I mean, I once I learned more about him, I started listening to more podcasts and... That had him on it, and yeah. I, I definitely felt like he was a very intense person. Yeah, but <clears throat> just running with him, like, you know, I, I learned he's very down to earth. He's he's human, just like me. And mm-hmm. I mean, there was even one point where there was a there was like a twenty two mile section between aid stations, and he'd run out of food, and you know, I, I gave him one of my gels, and hmm. so it, it was just it was kind of cool to see that he was human, just like all of us. And but yeah, no, nothing. Like out of the ordinary happened.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's actually kind of a, I think a big message that David likes to preach, right? Is like, I am just ordinary, but we can all kind of do extraordinary things, you know? And uh, I think he's, that message has really been heard by certainly a ton of people and helped a ton of people. So, um, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. His following is, yeah. And so another thing that, uh, I think you and David shared in common in this race, you both kind of made it, uh, off course a little bit. Um, and this was a, this was a factor this year, right? Um, we were getting reports that cows were either knocking over or chomping on a number of the race markers. Personally, I can just tell you that like, that would have absolutely blown up any mental game that I had. Like, If I have to go run 240 miles, I don't want to hear that I I veered off course. I think I probably would have just sat down and quit. Talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, is this something where you're like, well, that's what it's like running these 200 milers. Like you have to really navigate the course. How how mentally tough was that for you um, or not? So,
1: I mean, historically, that's something that really frustrates me. I try to learn quickly though that I have no reason to be frustrated because I'm the one that made the mistake but it's hard not to get frustrated but in this particular instance um, had Moab been the first race of the series I think I would have been pretty upset but where it was the third race and I'd won the first two going into Moab I kind of had my mind made up that I wanted to go for the win at Moab as well just to complete the the series with a sweep Mm -hmm. So when I got lost um, the couple times that I did, like I, I bounced back pretty quickly and ran. I, I think both times I haven't looked at my splits um, closely, but I'm pretty sure both times I picked up the pace. I was going quite a bit faster than what I was going before I got lost. so I kind of used that to uh, okay, you're lost, you gotta get back on track, you gotta maintain your lead, you gotta get to the finish line before that 60 hour mark. so. In this instance, it didn't mentally mess me up too much. Um, <clears throat> the point that I got lost where David Goggins also got lost, yeah. it didn't affect me at all. Um, hmm. The second night when I got lost, uh, I, I was probably lost for two to three hours. The, the th- I was pretty frustrated that time because um, we all are required to carry the map downloaded either to our watches or our phones. Yeah. Um, If you download it to your phone, there's an app called the Gaia app and you can actually pull the map up in airplane mode and it shows you your location in relation to the course. So if there's ever a part of the course where you can't find flags, you can pull that up and use it to navigate. That second night um, when we got lost, I pulled my phone out to navigate and it was so cold in the mountains that my phone just shut off and I couldn't get it to turn back on. So that section, I was super frustrated just because... Like, it could have been so easily fixed if my phone didn't do that. So, so yeah, I was pretty frustrated that night. But the first night, I, I was able to correct it and get back on track pretty quickly and easily.
0: So, what did you do that second night? You just wandered around till you lucked out and found the path again?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so what happened was it was at night. We were going on a trail, and then we got to a point where the trail essentially so candace the race director said that those who went through that section in the day had an easier time navigated navigating but when we were through there at night it looked like the trail just disappeared and then there was no flags anywhere um so we we wandered around for like an hour just in a quarter mile square radius trying to find a trail um, I eventually found something that looked like a trail, and then we went on that for probably 10 minutes but didn't see any flags. So we went back to, to where the trail disappeared and wandered around there for another 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And it got to the point where we were almost going to either just sit there and wait for second place or head back to the previous aid station. Wow. Um, but <clears throat> we decided just to give the random trail that we found one more shot – And so we went on that for another half mile to a mile, and we got to a point where there was still no flags, but we got to a point where I recognized it from when I did the race two years ago. Wow. And so we kept going on it for about another half mile to a mile just because I recognized it. And then at that point, we finally were able to find the flag, which assured us we were on the right path and then kept going.
0: Okay. You keep saying we... Who's with you at this point?
1: Sorry, my pacer.
0: In the Moab 240, I I think you are allowed to pick up a pacer at around mile 75. Do you pick somebody up right at that point, and and you've got somebody with you that whole time?
1: For this race, I did, yes. At Tahoe, I didn't have any pacers. At Bigfoot, I had one. Moab just happened to be—so I just barely moved to Denver for work. And Moab just kind of happens to be the halfway point between Denver and where I used to live. So I had a a pretty good list of friends that Hmm. wanted to come out and pace me for this one. So I was able to have somebody pace me from mile 75 to the finish.
0: Okay. This is to say then that when you and your pacer are out lost, both of your phones froze up?
1: Yes. Yeah, it was quite unfortunate.
0: (laughs) So mentally... Is that the hardest part? Was that the hardest part of this race? Or were there actually other sections or segments or elements that were more mentally brutal than that?
1: I mean, here and there, I'd just have moments where I was super tired and just would give anything to get in a nice bed and sleep for a few hours. That would happen sporadically, and it would only happen for a couple minutes. But in terms of collectively the amount of frustration that I had was definitely in that moment Yeah, because up to that point, I was fairly confident in my pace and being able to get the course record. Um, I ended up missing the course record by just over two hours, which is roughly how long I was lost there. So recognizing that that opportunity to take the course record was slowly going away with each minute that passed was definitely eating at me, especially when it Just would have been so avoided if my phone didn't die. But yeah, that was definitely the worst part of the race for me.
0: And this is Courtney DeWalter's record, right? Correct. At 57.30-ish?
1: Yeah, 57.45. 57.45. So I just had, and I finished in 59.30, so I I missed it by just under two hours.
0: Unfinished (laughs) business for next year? (laughs) Um, it's the meanest question. Uh, <laughs> it's the meanest question to ask people right after they're done. But, uh, I'm going to ask anyway, I'm mean,
1: um, maybe, uh, I want to do, I'm going to enter into the TDG lottery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I don't get picked for that, then I'm going to try to get into big's backyard ultra. And then if I don't get into either of those, then it's definitely a possibility.
0: Let's talk about sleep. How much did you sleep during the Moab 240?
1: Um, no more than twenty minutes.
0: So that's twenty minutes in how many hours of running? Fifty nine. Fifty nine thirty. <laughs>
1: Fifty nine thirty. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, that's not very much. Um, as your uh, as your health consultant, I advise you to sleep more. <laughs> <laughs>
1: See, I would try to sleep, but but just my, the way my body, even when I'm not racing, I'm not a good sleeper. So Hmm. I would try to sleep and I just couldn't. And yeah, Hmm. a lot of, there was one point where uh, I got to an aid station. It was dark at night. It was cold. And I got in the truck and slept for about 10 minutes. And that was the most consecutive consecutive lead that I slept for the race. Uh, All the other 10 minutes consisted of little two to three minute naps just on the side of the trail.
0: And are you telling your pacer, wake me up in two minutes?
1: <laughs> no, I was telling my pacer, to wake me up in 10 minutes, but I would wake up
0: in two minutes. Oh my goodness. Super. So yeah,
1: I, I advise sleeping more for these, but <laughs> if your body can't sleep for it, then there's not a lot that you can do. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's interesting, right? I mean, another question I had was, if you were looking to better this remarkable time of yours, it doesn't sound like we can cut out much sleep, that's not going to be where we find the extra time. Not getting lost—that would be—that would be a good thing. But what else? Um, as you size this up, where do you think that you could, you know, shave time or or make gains?
1: I think the biggest thing is going into it with fresher legs. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I mean, I've only done these two hundred milers with light back to back, so. I did all three of them two years ago, and then I took a break from the distance, and then I did all three of them again this year. I, I feel like if I was able ever just to pick a year where I'd pick one of these 200s, that, that I made it like my focus race, and I trained well for it, and tapered well for it, and went into it fresh and fit, that, that I could still cut off quite a bit of time from what I've already done.
0: Not that we would hold you to this, but how much time are you thinking would be possible to cut?
1: It's a tough question. <laughs> um, Bigfoot. I don't know if I could cut anything off of that. Um, yeah, I don't think I could hit, cut anything off of Bigfoot. But I feel like there's still. I, I still feel like for Moab, especially that 55 hours, 53 to 55 hours, isn't out of the question.
0: Can you imagine someone running sub 50 at the Moab 240?
1: At Moab, oof. Um, I would, I would say it's more possible once somebody goes sub 48 out of any of them.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: Um, they were pretty close to it last year, Courtney and Kyle, uh, Courtney to Walter and Kyle Kurt, and they both did just under 50 hours. So uh, I definitely think that once that 48 gets hit at Tahoe, that it's definitely a possibility at Moab. Yeah. That's a hard question to answer.
0: I mean, we're kind of we've... 40
1: extra miles.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've just recently seen uh, a sub two hour marathon time, I guess. So sure. we're, if there was a time to be thinking about what's possible, this is uh, it's kind this of in it. the water. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's back up for a minute, like really back up for a minute. You were not some little kid who was like, mommy, I want to go run hundred mile races (laughs) talk to me a little bit about like what you were into as a kid and maybe through high school or whatever and give us kind of the ramp up to um, you know this uh, this newfound thing you do of running really really long distance races
1: so yeah so growing up I I wasn't necessarily the most active person
0: I grew up in a small town
1: in northern Utah where I also uh, grew up on a dairy farm with my family. It was a family farm. So that preoccupied a lot of my time. Um, we didn't go on a lot of family vacations. I wasn't necessarily active in the terms of I wasn't running or hiking or or doing anything like that just because I was so tired from the farm all the time. Hmm. Um, and I just didn't really have an appreciation for it either. I, I liked to eat. <laughs> I was... <laughs> You know, my, my mom made some good biscuits and gravy every morning for me before I went out on the farm. And we, we had a lot of good meats and potatoes. So I ate a lot and worked on the farm and watched TV and then went to bed uh, for a lot of my childhood. And then as I got older and got into high school, I, I got interested in sports, but the farm still preoccupied a lot of my time.
0: Hmm.
1: And then finally I decided to do football my senior year of high school. Um, and I made that decision in my junior year. So as I was signing up for football, uh, the coach made it clear to me that doing track was a requirement for football. <laughs> so I did track my junior year and my senior year. I did track my senior year, or sorry, I did football my senior year. And so in my junior year, I started doing a little bit of running. Um, I did the 3,200 meter distance in track and, I also threw the javelin, and I wasn't great at either of them, just because I just jumped right into it, and I I definitely was not gifted for it. And then I practiced hard and trained hard for football, but there was just so many other people that had been doing it for so many years before me, and I spent most of my time on the bench. My introduction to sports was very late and very brief. Once I graduated from high school, I stopped being active again, and... Hmm just kind of didn't have an appreciation for it.
0: By the way, let me, let me interject. Why on earth would you have been running the 3200? That does not <laughs> seem like the right training for football.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I remember distinctly there was one day we did like a 40-yard dash there was this guy that was like, you know, I, I probably at this point I shed a little bit of pounds and trimmed up from training for football, so I was roughly 185, 190 pounds at this point. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we did the 40 yard dash, there was a kid that was he had to have been 230 to 250. Yeah. And we did the 40 yard dash, and he beat me at it. <laughs> and so I, I shied away from sprints and shorter distances very quickly. Just because I felt pretty embarrassed that somebody that weights that much more than me was able to sprint faster than me. So Hmm. I found the 3,200 meter distance and tried it out. And I was not great at it. I wasn't terrible at it. So I just kind of gravitated towards that distance just because no one else was doing it, I guess.
0: Huh. Wow. Okay. That's kind of a funny story. And a very strange introduction into track and field. Uh, I yeah. mean, for, given everything we've just talked about and what you've accomplished, um, yeah, you're right. This isn't the most orthodox uh, <laughs> origin story, I guess I'd say. So, okay, so your senior year, you're spending a decent amount of time on the bench during football season. That wraps up and you're just sort of wrapping up your athletic career at least for the time being that's that's where we're at in this story
1: yes <laughs>
0: okay and then what do you
1: yeah so i i stopped doing all that i went to alaska for a few months to work and um, to make some money and then i ended up serving a service mission for the church that i'm a part of
0: okay um so
1: i did that for a couple of years where i left my family and I went to Toronto, Canada for a couple of years and did some service, and then um, I came back from that. So I was about, I just turned 21 by the time that I came back from that. And I got back and the plan was to go to college, but by the time I got back, I barely missed the first semester that I could have attended college. So I I had nothing to do essentially. Uh, I picked up a job, but aside from my job, I, I didn't have anything else. So my sister at the time, she she lived in the same area that I did, and she was training for a half marathon that the city threw on later that year. And she just challenged me to sign up and do it and to train with her. So I did that, and I didn't necessarily train like a a normal person would train for it. I didn't take it seriously. But I, I ended up doing it, and I got it was just under an hour and a half. So it was like a six 52 pace
0: uh-huh
1: i mean i i was pretty stoked with that considering the amount of time that i trained for it yeah and so it was at that point that i um kind of started running a little bit more consistently a little bit more faithfully just uh just because i felt like i could actually be good at this Um, So I just started running three to five miles a day to stay in shape. And then I eventually decided I wanted to start trying to run fast at the mile distance to try and walk on the track team at Utah State, Hmm. the college that I was attending. And then just as I was getting into that, uh, I was in a skiing accident and broke my back. So that kind of put everything on halt.
0: (laughs) Now, what year is that?
1: This was February of 2012 that I broke my back. And then it was uh, August of 2011 that I ran my first half marathon.
0: Yep. Talk to me about this ski injury. Where were you? What were you doing?
1: So Logan, Utah, where Utah state university is, there's a ski resort uh, about 30 minutes up a Canyon. That's uh, just by Utah state. So I was up at that ski resort with my friends and, uh, you know, that, that ski resort has been there for a while. So I, I, I've been going there a fair amount of times at this point, and I would consider myself a fairly decent to uh, advanced skier. There was a, a terrain park there that had a pretty huge tabletop jump, and it was just at the base of a pretty steep descent. And I'd hit the jump multiple times before, but before hitting, you know, I was carving down the mountain like I should be. But this particular time, I wanted to try and hit the jump head-on without any kind of carving to see how far I could go, which was which is a stupid, stupid idea.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, I did have an outside influence. We met a girl up there, so I was trying to show off. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I, I I went down the hill just skis pointing forward, no carving at all, and as soon as I got on the jump, I knew I was going way too fast and. Panicked, and as I launched off, I was leaning back because I was trying to fall down before launching off. Yep. So I launched off, leaning backwards, and it was a completely icy day. There was no powder whatsoever. So I launched off, leaning backwards, and landed flat on my back. And it felt as if I landed on straight concrete because of how icy it was <sighs> and shattered my L1 vertebrae.
0: Did you immediately? is this one of those where it's searing pain right away or didn't actually feel that bad upon impact? Like, what was this like?
1: Uh, it it was instantly sharp and fiery. Yeah. As as soon as I hit the ground, I knew I did something Yeah. and I was terrified that I did something that was going to paralyze me. Yeah. So in retrospect, this was a stupid, stupid thing that I did. But in the moment I was so panicked that I paralyzed myself that you know, I landed and I slid a few feet, and as soon as I stopped sliding, I got up on my knees and hands and and crawled a couple feet just to make sure that I could still move, and I just laid down on the side of my body and was just screaming in pain.
0: Okay, so I'm guessing it was a pretty straight trip to the hospital.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a friend that skied down to the bottom of the where the ski patrol was and. They came up and skied me down on those uh, toboggan, is that yep. what they're called?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I got to ride down to the bottom on the toboggan, and by the time I got down there, there was an ambulance up there, and rode the ambulance. T- oh, this is, this is another funny little side note, but the clothes that I were in, the clothes that I was wearing were newer ski clothes that I had just purchased, <laughs> and the... Uh, the people in the ambulance were getting ready to cut my pants off (laughs) and i just begged and pleaded with them to not cut my pants off because i just barely bought them Uh (laughs) and they actually listened to me huh yeah they didn't cut my pants but anyway i got a ride down to the hospital and um my mom was there waiting for me and in a couple hours they did x-rays and confirmed that i shattered my vertebrae and it was the very next morning that I went into surgery and they took out part of my hip bone and fused that to my spine. And then also inserted two rods hmm. along my spine, along with nine screws in into my, into my spine.
0: Wow. So then they also gave you some news, right? Um, about this running career of yours that you were kind of just trying to get going, or right? I mean... Especially at this time, and talking about just seeing what you could do in the mile.
1: Right. So I remember it was like three weeks before I broke my back. I decided to go bust a mile to see how fast I could do it. And I did it in 454.
0: My God, dude. Which,
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was super stoked that I was able to break five, but I knew that to be able to perform on a college track team, that I'd have to really decrease that time. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I I did that without essentially training that hard to do it, so I was pretty confident that if I trained hard and worked hard that I could cut that down a little bit. So I came out of surgery and, you know, the doctor told me everything went well and one of the first questions I asked him was when I could start running again. And he told me that, so this was February 2012, he told me that uh, I'd be bedridden for a few months that um, I would have to use some assistance, like a walker or a cane, and he wanted me to walk a mile a day to, to recover. But aside from that, he wanted me to lay in bed. Hmm. He told me by August if I was lucky I could start swimming a little bit and do some low-impact exercise, or sorry, low impact exercise. And he said if everything went well, if my recovery went well, I'd be able to start running again a year from surgery. Um, hmm. Yeah, but that, that's not how it happened.
0: <laughs> how did it happen? <laughs>
1: So I dropped out of college, well, I incompleted my classes for that semester, uh, which means that my teachers let me just kind of put everything on hold, and we went about planning um, that I would start college again exactly a year from then. So we incompleted my classes. I, I just started a job like a week before this, so when they heard I'd be bedridden for a long time, I ended up losing that job. So, yeah, I I dropped out. I moved home, lived in my parents' house. And for the first few days, I I did my exercise to walk a mile a day with my walker. And it was painful, and I was super bitter just because, you know, I I, I feel like it would be hard not to be bitter at this point, um, at least for a couple of days. Yeah. But in retrospect, I... As I think about it, I, I always had the mind of an ultra runner because very early on, like less than a week after my surgery, I started kind of trying to push my limits a little bit where after three days, four days of walking a mile, I, I would try to increase my time. So it took me like 50 minutes to do these two, this mile and um, I tried to drop it down to 30 minutes and Once I was able to do that, I decided to try and walk a mile and a half a day, two miles a day, three miles a day. And it got to the point where no more than three weeks after my surgery, I was walking up to six miles a day. And it got to the point where I was able to do that without any assistance, so I didn't need to use my walker anymore. So about three and a half weeks post-surgery, just a couple of days after I was walking six miles a day, I decided I would try to really push the limits and go for a short half-mile run. And I also I had to wear one of those torso body braces, those ones that they make and design specifically to the frame of your body. It's like a, it's like a plastic almost. But yeah, so I ran half a mile with that brace on, and it was super uncomfortable, but I kept doing it and got to the point where I was running a mile or two a day, and then eventually six weeks post-surgery, I had signed up and ran a a local 10K.
0: Now, were your surgeons telling you, like, the reason you don't want to be running right now is because you may mess up the surgery or just the healing process or were they not so much concerned about that? Just like, Hey, this is going to hurt.
1: They never, uh, they could have said why, but I don't remember. Um, I don't remember them saying don't run because you will affect your healing process. I just remember them saying don't run.
0: (laughs) They left out the, they left out the why. I'm pretty sure we, it's safe to assume they would have added because it will affect the healing process.
1: Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah.
0: Then again, I don't know any uh, whether any of those docs have uh, just won the triple crown. Uh, so I think <laughs> there, <laughs> maybe there's a method to your madness.
1: So that's the cool thing. A couple of years ago, I received like a a postcard in the mail, like an invite to a special dinner, um, where like, a a guy who specializes in spines, um, was doing a presentation. So me and my wife went to it cause it was a free dinner. And I, the thing that was super funny about it was everybody that was there was at least 60 years old. Huh. I, I don't know if this guy like went through medical records to see who had back surgery or whatnot, but, hmm. but for some reason or another, I got this special invite and and after the presentation, he and I were talking and I told him about my surgery and I told him about these these distances that I enjoy running. And so he invited me to come to this clinic to do some x-rays on me because he was curious to know how uh, this running was affecting my spine. We did the x-rays and afterwards he, he showed them to me and he was like, you know, I'll admit that I, I invited you here in hopes to get business out of you, but as I look at your spine, everything, about it is perfect and huh. yeah, whatever you're doing is working so just keep doing it
0: wow well there you go yeah <laughs> <laughs> so did you end up running at utah state
1: no so that so everybody that asked me so this was the this is the very long roundabout way to get to why i ultra run but yeah whenever somebody asks me why i ultra run, i say it's because i broke my back mm-hmm. um, The reason I say that is because, you know, I lost my job. I started running and six weeks after my surgery, I was running 10 K's. At that point, like I didn't have college because I suspended my classes for a year and I lost my job. And so I started running just a lot every day because I had nothing else to do. So I was uh, like two and a half, three months after my surgery, I was running 10 miles a day about. And then that summer, I finally got a job somewhere and <clears throat> made a friend, and that friend learned that I like to run, so he introduced me to another guy at the company who liked to run. And He and I were talking, and I invited him, or I asked him if he was going to run the, there was like a, a local 10K that weekend or the weekend after. I asked him if he was going to run it, and uh, I'll never forget it, but... <laughs> And he wasn't cocky about it at all, but his response was that I typically don't run distances or I don't, I don't run races that are less than a marathon. And at that point I had zero idea that anything above a marathon existed. Right. So, so he told me that he was training for a 50 miler that was happening later that month and that he was going to be doing a hundred miler later that year. And so he, he opened my eyes to the crazy world of ultra running and you never know what would have happened if things happened a different way, but you know, it was because I lost my job and found this new job and met this guy that I was able to be taught about ultra running.
0: Okay, so what year are we at now where you are just learning about there's such a thing as like 50 milers? What year are we?
1: This is still 2012, the same year S- I broke up. Still my back.
0: 2012, okay. So it's 2012, 2013 that you start getting into ultras.
1: So he told me about the distance. He kept inviting me to go running with him and I kept turning him down just because I was intimidated.
0: (laughs) Smart. (laughs) Understandable. Yeah.
1: So yeah, this was summer of 2012 and I eventually went for a run with him. It was like seven months later. It was spring of
0: 2013.
1: Okay. And I, I fell in love with the aspect of trail running. That was my first trail run. I, at that point, I'd been running all on roads. So he took me on a local trail run. I fell in love with the aspect of, of vertical gain, of running on trails. He, um, he told me that there was a race in a couple of months just there in the town that we lived in in Logan called the Logan Peak Race and it's a 28 miler and it's it goes up to one of our higher peaks in the area and back so 28 miles roughly 7,000 feet of gain and told me about it so I signed up for it and did it and absolutely loved it and I ended up pacing him for the Bear 100 that same year and fell in love with the 100 mile concept so I signed up for my first 100 a year after that. So first hundred was a bare 100 in September of 2014. so that would have been a year and a half after I broke my back. Wow. no sorry two and a half years after I broke my
0: back. And then what did this progression of yours look like? You run your first hundred. Do you run several more hundreds? And like I guess the question the leading question here is when do you get to your first <sighs> 200?
1: So yeah, I did my first hundred in 2014. And then I ended up signing up for another 100 in spring of 2015. Then I signed up for another 100 in the fall of 2015. So I ended up doing 300s in the first year that I experimented with the distance.
0: And how did those go? I mean, how did they go? What did you think of this? Were you way into it? Were you like, this is crazy? But you somehow kept signing up?
1: Yeah, I mean, all of it. Uh, My first 100 was terrible. I developed some. IT band issues and the weather was bad, so I absolutely hated it. But not enough to not sign up for another one six months later. <laughs> and then that one went. I mean, that one went very well. I I ended up getting it was a it was about ten thousand feet of gain in comparison to the other one that I did, which had almost that had more than double than that. But I ended up running the second hundred in under twenty hours, which was something that I never thought I'd be able to do that quickly. <laughs> And then my third hundred um, kind of went similar to the first hundred where I had some knee issues and stomach issues and just kind of slogged it out to the finish. But for some, I mean, you know, anybody that does ultras, for some reason, the roller coaster ride is attractive and
0: yeah.
1: I mean, we, we keep signing up for them even if it goes badly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep. So you, you, you know, not too long ago, you were this guy who was like, I didn't know there was something longer than a marathon. And now you've done three hundreds. When did you start? When did you first start like learning about or thinking of like, oh, maybe I should try my hand at a 200.
1: So it was roughly a year after my uh, third 100 that I first learned about the distance Um, I have a buddy in Salt Lake City, Utah named DJ Lorchester, who at the time was doing something called the Double Crown of 200s, which was the Bigfoot 200 and the Tahoe 200. Mm -hmm. So he, he was the one, just from following him on social media, he was the one that showed me that there was a distance more than 100 miles. And once he completed the Double Crown of 200s, I started messaging him and asking him about the experience and what he thought of it. And then I looked at his times and he and I were a similar runner and I saw what his times were and saw that he had the overall record for the double crown. Hmm. That kind of intrigued me because, you know, who doesn't want to try to go after a record Hmm. and the distance is still fairly new. So, and where he and I were similar runners, I felt like it was a a record that I could uh, honestly go after. So he, he convinced me into doing it. I signed up for the Bigfoot 200 and, Uh, This was 2016 that I signed up for it. So 2017 that I was planning on racing it. Mm -hmm. And then Candace announced the addition of the Moab 240 uh, shortly before I was planning on signing up for the (laughs) Tahoe 200, (laughs) which threw in a huge, huge wrench to what I was planning on doing so much that I decided that I was just going to do Bigfoot. So I ended up not signing up for Tahoe. I did Bigfoot uh, the following year. Things went terribly. I hated it. Mm. But um, my coach at the time kind of laid out a plan and showed me why he thinks everything went so terribly, which, you know, this was a week after finishing Bigfoot, and it got my wheels turning trying Mm. to figure out how I think I could do at the distance if nothing went wrong. And so just a week after finishing the Bigfoot 200, I ended up signing up for the other two, and I, (sighs) I I did the triple crown that year.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, glutton for punishment. So, okay, so this is 2017, you do the triple, and we we need, I know people are probably listening to this mad at me, because we haven't talked more about the 2018 Triple Crown, let alone this year's Triple Crown, so there's, but you, sorry, man, you've got an interesting story, you, there's a lot to cover here, like I said. So, talk about then, maybe briefly, how did the, the next two legs go in 2017, the Tahoe and Moab
1: 240? So... The Tahoe 200 and Moab 240 went just as terrible as the Bigfoot 200, <laughs> Sweet. but in completely different ways. Um, at Bigfoot, I had a lot of digestive issues where I was puking for the first 100 miles. Couldn't hold anything down. Um, at Tahoe and Moab, I did not have digestive issues, so the, the ideas and tips that my coach gave me helped out because it was strictly digestive tips. But at Tahoe, I started to develop IT band issues at mile 60, and I walked for 60 miles. Like, I walked from 60 to 120. I technically dropped at that aid station. Um, But then after sitting there and reevaluating, I asked if I could continue, and they gave me my bid back. Wow. So from mile 120 to 170, I... I was feeling a little bit better. The ibuprofen was kicking in, and I was able to run a little bit. And then it came back, in mile 175 to the finish, I ended up walking it all again. So I walked half of that race. And then Moab 240, uh, things were pretty good all the way up till mile 200, where I developed a stress fracture in my leg. <laughs> Uh, but I was at 200. So I, I walked the final 40 miles to get that finish. And that, that really slowed me down. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's a lot that happened those, uh, that year that, that affected the outcome.
0: Maybe you wise up and for 2018, you're like, maybe I'm not going to do that triple crown. <laughs> what <laughs> remind me, you talked about this at the start of the conversation, but what was your 2018 about?
1: Um, just, just resetting a little bit, trying to think. I had, I, I did the bear 100, which was the local hundred miler where I was from. Um, I really wanted to improve my time on that. And I mean, I, I didn't really have any like big, big races that, that I was aiming for thinking about. I just wanted to have a year where I just signed up for the local races and enjoyed myself.
0: I mean, you can answer this, not from how you were thinking about this at the time, but how do you think about this now? The hundred miler, the hundred mile distance versus these two hundred and two forty mile distances, I, it was amazing, right? Like you know, I was at the Geyser Aid Pass Station at this recent Moab two forty. Most of the people I talked with had only done a hundred before. I'd say that was the vast majority. And so to go from like yeah, I've run a hundred before, maybe one or two. Now I'm just jumping to two forty, right? Like right. That seems a little bit, if we're going back to a ski analogy, it's like, I once jumped off a jump and did a 180. Now I'm trying 720s, you know? <sighs> like I, And so, I don't know. How Talk to me a little bit about those two distances and that jump and whether now you have a clear preference for the 200 to 240 over a 100 miler?
1: That's, that's an interesting question, for sure. Um, I feel... Personally, I feel there's a point with ultras where um, you're physically ready to do anything.
0: Hmm.
1: So, for example, if you can physically do 100 miles and you can physically do 200 miles, there's not a lot that you can do to physically prepare for 200. Um, There's not a lot more that you can do than what you've been doing to prepare for 100 miles. Um, Any point after that distance, the 100 mile, is a lot relies very heavily on your mental capacity yeah uh, to be able to keep going because there's so many different aspects for the 200 mile distance because it's just so much longer you have sleep stations that you need to plan on you need to be better with your food you need to pay attention to the weather because instead of just one night potentially two nights like the 100 mile distance you only have for the 100 mile distance you only have two days of weather to prepare for where a 200-mile distance, you could have up to five days of weather to prepare for. Yeah. So there's a lot of coordination, a lot of logistics, and mentally just being able to accept that you're about to go a few nights without sleeping in a bed. Yeah. So, and, and two, there's not a lot of distances out there that's between 100 miles and 200 miles. You have your timed events, like your 24-hour timed events, where you end up doing something between those distances, but... You know, there's not a lot of 150-mile races out there where you can sign up for to use as a stepping stone to get to 200 miles. Uh, but again, I don't think that's necessary. I think that once you can physically run 100 miles, you can physically run 200 miles. You just really got to work on your
0: mental game. Do you think we're going to keep seeing these distances extend? Are we going to see a 300-miler, a 500-miler? Uh,
1: absolutely. There's a 300 mile layer that's... Uh, inaugural year is next year.
0: Which race is that?
1: It's called the California Untamed. It's 330 miles. It starts somewhere by the ocean and ends up at Mount Shasta. Huh. So yeah, next year there's a 300-mile race. And I mean, from where I've seen, I haven't seen her confirm it, but there's been rumors. They've seemed to die down a little bit lately, but that, that Candice is going to make a 500-mile race. So... I know that it's in the talks. I just don't know how long it will take before it's here, but I definitely think it's going to be here.
0: Are you personally intrigued by these longer distances?
1: 300 miles for sure, Uh, you know, just because, I mean, with the mileage that I got lost at at Moab and with it being 244 miles already, like, I basically ran 250 miles. So, you know, 50 miles after that doesn't seem too impossible. (laughs) <laughs> but 500 that's, that's, that's double what I've done. So yeah. I, uh, I don't have an answer for that one right now.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. You know, a wise person I've recently talked to told me that if you can run a hundred miles, you basically can run any distance. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, yeah, I heard that just recently. So uh, I don't know. But I
1: don't know if my mental game is ready for 500.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: I got to figure out how to sleep at these races before I even consider that. Yeah.
0: That, maybe you just need to learn how to sleep in general. It sounds yeah. like. <laughs> um, by the way, we had uh, we had Zach Bitter uh, on, on Off the Couch. Uh, I thought Zach was just so good at talking about the event and his preparation for it and his headspace and the rest. Are you intrigued by that 12-hour record? I am not. Okay.
1: Just because I know I'm confident in saying that I cannot ma- maintain the pace that he held. <laughs> I mean, he was holding six, was it 47?
0: Something like that.
1: It was in the 640s. He was holding that pace for 12 hours. And I, I, I know that I'm not built to be able to run that fast for 12 hours.
0: <laughs> I don't know. If there's such
1: a thing as a 12-hour record in the mountains, I'd be a little bit more confident. Yeah. Like with a lot of gain and... A lot more power hiking but flat running for a six minute 47 pace i i cannot do that
0: yeah um uh, me neither it turns out <laughs> um do you think of yourself more as an as an ascender or descender 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 okay yeah okay I'm
1: pretty good at power hiking um i've gotten that down pretty well but i like at tahoe for example i I was so tired and I didn't have a lot of kick for the uphills, but I was able to run downhill fairly well still. So I, I, I just have a lot of, I, I feel I feel confident in my capability to just lean forward and run fast downhill.
0: Yep. So if you're coming into these races, is it fair to say that's where you're looking to make time on people on the descents as opposed to the ascents?
1: For shorter races, that's my strategy. But for this distance, it's uh, I, I, I don't use that. As a strategy, I just try to maintain a solid pace for the whole thing. And honestly, now that I think about it, I actually probably go slower on the downhills at these races so I can consistently run an average pace at mile 180. Just to give you an example for that, like early on in the race uh, at Bigfoot, I remember there was a group of five of us running together and we were the top five. And It got to the point where there was like a four or five-mile downhill section where they all took off and were running like... 720 730 pace which for like a normal training run that's not terribly fast but at that point i knew that going that fast at mile six for a 200 mile run i would pay for it later so i let them take off i slowed down to about a nine minute pace and it, it, it really testified to me that it's smart to to not blow your quads up on the downhill so early on because later on i was able to run past people at a pretty average pace where they were, like, hiking, taking height breaks just because their quads were so tired from all the downhill.
0: So consistency. Keep yeah. it consistent rather than looking to make make up time on the climbs or descents. Exactly. Okay. We got to talk about your 2019 and this triple crown. Um, so we've talked a good bit about this last segment, the Moab 240. This is a hell of of a thing you've done um, with this triple, and um, you've had a little bit of time to reflect on this now. Is there anything in particular that stands out about this achievement of winning all three, the Bigfoot, Tahoe, and Moab? Um, Is it primarily a sense of relief right now? What are kind of your thoughts on this? I mean, uh,
1: relief is a big thing, but... I'd say the biggest thing I'm feeling right now is just amazement in what happened because I went into this with no goal on winning any of them. Uh, my time from... Two, so my 2017 Triple Crown time was 205 hours, uh, which was the Triple Crown record. And then last year, no one took that record. So going into the Triple, my records still stand. And and I I knew that just the fact that I walked half of Tahoe that I walked the final 40 miles of Moab that I had stomach issues for the first hundred miles of Bigfoot I knew that if I felt really dialed in and really physically fit and capable that I could really knock some time off of of my current record so I just set the goal I, to to beat my record by over 20 hours and to run sub-60 at each of the 200s, mm-hmm. which felt very, very aggressive when I set it, just because that was eight to nine hours off of each race, which is kind of funny. I set my overall goal for 20 hours, because if I did sub-60 at all three, it would have been much more than 20. <laughs> but so I, I didn't have the, the goal to win any of them, and I didn't honestly think it was possible. So just the fact that I was able to surprise myself and get a win... And a course record at Bigfoot and then the same at Tahoe just really caught me off guard and I went into Moab with the goal of winning that like I said earlier so I could just get the sweep but just to be able to sit here and realize that that actually happened when I wasn't even planning on it is just something that I'm super grateful for and amazed at and just gives me a little bit more confidence in, in, in myself
0: We always say that, um, you know, I interview a ton of skiers and snowboarders and athletes in all different walks. I think consistently runners are, like, the most self-deprecating and humble. So I guess I have to press you on this. You really didn't think you were going to win any of these races coming into them. No. Why did you not think, given the success of Bigfoot and Tahoe, I know you said your goal was to win Moab, right? But you weren't like, Yeah, I got this. Is that is that a fair characterization coming into Moab? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Because even if I was confident in my ability to win at that point, I still had the nagging factor that I am tired from the first two. Yeah. And it's two hundred and forty miles. So just because Bigfoot and Tahoe went so perfectly for me, like, that's not to say that that I pull a hip or, uh, I don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: I, it's not to say that anything bad aside from fatigue would happen at Moab just because you can't predict that. So so it, I, I had the thought that I had 410 miles on my legs uh, within a month and uh, anything could happen at Moab. So I, I, I was probably least confident in my capability of winning at Moab than the other two.
0: And then it sounds like you were not Preparing for a big crown defense for next year. So it, it's maybe too small of a sample size, but are you starting to get into like every other year? <laughs> Is this, I'm sensing a pattern, but it's like I said, a small sample size.
1: Well, you know, there's rumors that there's going to be a grand slam of 200s eventually, that she'll add a fourth one, a part of the series. Yeah. And when that happens, then I'll definitely be intrigued. Okay. But I mean, my whole goal with this this year was to just really throw down a solid three races and really see what I could do, um, feeling fit and feeling confident and not having any issues pop up, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happened, which yeah, which I'm amazed at, because it's 650 miles. So to, to be able to say that all three of these races went perfect is, is something that I'm very stoked that I could say. Hmm. So the fact that it happened, like, I, I'm very satisfied with where I'm at right now with the Triple Crown. Um, I'm not saying I'm done with the distance. Like like I said earlier, I, I'd like to be able to pick one of these and make it an A race one year and just really throw it down and see what I could do. But in terms of doing all of them in one year, I, I really, I don't feel the need to do that anymore until there's a fourth
0: one. You mentioned at the very start of this conversation that you were feeling pretty tired because you're not exactly eating a lot right now. And uh, so I think given that you are tired, we should probably let you get going. But maybe I will ask you a bit um, about your diet.
1: Yeah. So I follow the same style of eating as Zach Bitter, mm-hmm. um, Jeff Browning. The From the outside world, it's simply called the ketogenic diet. But uh, from the perspective of what we do, we call it low-carb, high-fat. We call it... Low carb, high fat. We call it primal blueprint and there's a word that zach always used that every time i try to say it i sound like an idiot because i can't say it as good as he does but it's like period 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 periodization yeah yeah so yeah that that's the style of eating that i do so um for an average american diet it's fairly low carb uh for a ketogenic diet it's not as low carb as what you would do if you were strictly following that yeah Uh, but yeah, long story short, I, I don't eat any grains. I, I eat very little carbs, a lot of fat. Um, and I do that just to train my body to better burn fat for fuel. Hmm. And then just right now I'm kind of doing this weird thing. I've never done it before, but, uh, for a lot of different reasons, I'm going on a multi-day fast. Um, I started Monday evening at 9 PM. That was my last, bit of food and I'm gonna go till Monday morning at eight AM. Wow. So trying to go for a six and a half day fast, just drinking water and like I said, just for a few different reasons, but that's that's not like a typical typical annual thing that I do. It's it's very new.
0: Just water. Just water. I think I'm glad I'm not your body. <laughs> <laughs> How do you hey, you've just finished the triple crown of 200s. What are you going to do to celebrate, not eat? So, yeah. Well, Uh,
1: I had a a week long of eating a lot of good food.
0: Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that.
1: I mean, I talked to Zach Bitter a little bit about it. And, I mean, yeah, it's another stressor on my body. But at the same time, like, you know, it's probably going to help my digestion a little bit Hmm. where – during these 200s, I was eating everything at random times and just eating yeah. foods that I usually don't eat, which added a lot of stress to my digestive system. So, so yeah, like fatigue-wise, I'm sure my body's not happy about it. But in a digestive standpoint, it, it's probably like, okay.
0: <laughs> huh. But this is this is new. You have not done this before.
1: Nah, okay. I typically fast once a month, but just for 24 hours. Okay. This is my first time ever going over 24 hours.
0: Wow. So you said there's actually a few reasons why you're doing this fast. Um, and you mentioned like kind of recalibrating your digestive system. Do you mind sharing some of the other reasons?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons is just from a spiritual standpoint, like, yeah, you know, I, I believe that fasting is a good way to bring out your spiritual side. So doing it for that reason. And then also This is kind of an interesting reason, but like I said, when I was in high school, I was a little bit overweight, and so I lost all that weight. And right now, I have this little bit of skin that's over my lower abdomen that, no matter how clean I eat, no matter how much core I do, how much I exercise, I can't get rid of it. So I've done a lot of research into it, and um, a multi-day fast is, uh, for the few people that's done it, it's a it's a way to. Permanently tight in your skin. So I'm doing it in the hopes that I can finally get that area a little bit more tight and firm Um, and then just like this kind of falls into the spiritual aspect of it all but I've recognized that I feel like I'm a slave to food Uh and just in this past like I've been just over 40 hours without food now and just in the 40 hours that I've done this so far I can tell that that's definitely true (laughs) So it's just a way for me to try and show myself that I am in control and, and that, that something as minute as food is not going to control my life.
0: That's very interesting. Uh, you're finding ways to exercise mental and spiritual discipline even when you're not in the middle of a 240-mile <laughs> race.
1: Uh, I'll tell you what, I wish I was in the middle of a 240-mile race right now compared to this. Oh, Wow. <laughs> Yeah, like I, like I, I mean, I love to eat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: huh. Huh.
1: So yeah, just being, just taking that away from me, like I, I'd much rather be in the middle of a long race right now than going without food but I'm hoping that in the next day or two that that will change and I'll appreciate it a little bit more.
0: Well, man, this has been really interesting and I really appreciate the time. I do, I am sensitive. Like I want to let you get going, but I guess before we do wrap here and this will kind of put in the, this is all off the record part, but I guess I'm curious um, if there's anything obvious that I've messed up and failed to ask you about Sometimes I put this in the, I, I'll say like, what's the best question I haven't asked you? And my motivation for asking that is just like, you know, this has been great. I, you know, we've had a nice conversation. And if you're kind of like, man, I cannot believe you haven't brought up X or <coughs> Y, you know, um, anything come to mind that we should... I mean, I know we could have drilled down on details of Bigfoot and Tahoe and there's probably people who will be like, why didn't you do more of that? But, um, so I'm, I'm happy to, but I don't know, from your point of view, thoughts?
1: No, I think we covered it pretty well.
0: Okay. Um I mean,
1: you know, we, yeah, I think it went pretty well.
0: Okay. Um... Should I ask you about Ultra and like just how long you've been working with them or that one, again, I would, if that feels good and comfortable, we, we certainly can. Or if you're like, ah, I think we're good.
1: I think
0: that'd be fine. Okay. Um, by the way, I'm actually not sure that you ever answered the first question I asked you, which was, where are you today? I guess that was the second question I asked you. I'm going to start that over. By the way, I'm not sure that you ever answered the second question that I asked in this conversation, which is, where are you today? So maybe we should go back to that one. Where are you?
1: I'm in, I'm in Denver right now, Denver, Colorado. Um, technically, it's Greenwood Village, Colorado, which is just a little bit to the south of Denver. But I, I'm at my job right now. I work for Ultra Footwear. So yeah, I'm just in one of our conference rooms right now.
0: Yeah, and how long have you been working with Ultra?
1: Three and a half years now. The the great thing about Ultra is I was introduced to them when I was living in my hometown in Logan, Utah, and the the company was actually based in Logan, Utah. We were owned by a fitness company there.
0: Yep. And then early last year
1: there was another company that approached them and there was a deal. So we were sold to VF and now we're in Denver, Colorado with them and a couple of their other brands.
0: I'd have more respect for ultra if they, you know, maybe had some folks around there that were good at running long distances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they. <they've>, yeah. We're <laughs> hypocrites, aren't we? <laughs> they must like you around there. It's like, uh, I hope So, yeah, there's, uh, quite a bit of, you know, I don't know, practicing what we preach kind of a thing going on, I think. Um, so, uh, it's pretty good. Um, well, I, 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 mentioned to you previously, like I, I run in ultras. Those are kind of my preferred, but, but those are, that's what I run in if I'm road running or like just doing quick workouts on the treadmill. So I, uh, I have yet to actually run in an ultra trail shoe. So we, um, I don't know, we might have to, because I've literally run in I think virtually every other ultra road shoe. So, um, I don't know, we might have to look into this a bit, but, uh, now that, uh, now that I have reason to believe that they're decent for running, you know, 240 miles, <laughs> they might, they might do okay on my five to six mile runs.
1: Oh yeah. They're great
0: for that. <laughs> I'll have to get you in some. <laughs> um, Well, Mike, this has really been fun. Um, I really appreciate the time and getting a chance to uh, talk more, uh, you know, learn more about your story and talk with you about um, this remarkable 2019 that you've had and uh, pretty remarkable life you've had, too. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And uh, let's see. You said, first of all, you're in the middle of this fast. I'm going to wish you, you know best of wishes uh, for this next week you know the rest of this week ahead of you till Monday um, and then you mentioned a couple races that you either I don't know if you're committed to these or just kind of have your eye on them
1: yeah yeah so I um, the goal is in February I'm going to enter the lottery for TDG yep. Tortagents. yeah which is a 200 mile race in Italy and it has essentially double the amount of elevation gain as Bigfoot yeah so my eyes are set on that, hoping I'll get into that. And if I don't get into that, then I'm going to try to figure out how to get into Biggs Backyard Ultra, yep. which just took place a couple days ago. Uh, I'll put in a plug for her, Maggie Gutierrez. You should interview her next.
0: Okay, yeah. She's
1: the, she's the winner of Biggs, and she is, she's amazing. Um, so, yeah, if I don't get into Tortue or Biggs, then I kind of am going to have to really look into the race schedule and see what sticks out to me.
0: Interesting. Well, you've certainly earned a bit of a break and, uh, I'll be eager to see what, uh, which event we end up finding you participating in next. But yeah, it's, uh, like I said, um, it's a remarkable thing you've done here and and that you've done three times. Uh, so, uh, you know, in our last podcast conversation for off the couch, we got to interview kind of in brief, a number of different people who were running the Moab 240 and working the event and concerned family members and the rest. But uh, I was like, I really wanna actually talk to somebody else, uh, a guy named Mike. And so uh, I I'm, I'm appreciate you taking the time and glad we can make this happen.
1: Oh yeah, I appreciate you reaching out. It's been fun talking about it.
0: Well, cool. Well, all right, man, you take care and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.
1: Okay, thanks, you too.
0: That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Mike for the conversation. Thanks to Jared Farley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd encourage you to subscribe to Off the Couch for free. Check out all the other episodes. Tell your friends about the show. And leave us a nice little rating in iTunes. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.